The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. He was, in Dana Joya's words, quote, the first modern poet. In both style and content, his provocative, alluring, and shockingly original work shaped and enlarged the imagination of later poets, not only in his native France, but across Europe and the Americas. His ideas on the autonomy of art, the alienation of the artist, the irrationality of human behavior, the intellectualization of poetry, the cult of beauty and the beauty of evil, and the frank depiction of sexuality became central to modernist aesthetics. End quote. His name, of course, was Charles Baudelaire, and his collection of poems called Les Fleurs de Mal, or Flowers of Evil, inspired and haunted poetry for decades to come. Now we have a new translation to inspire us, one performed by our friend of the show, Aaron Puchigian. We'll have Aaron here today to talk about Baudelaire's love for Poe, the quality and nature of his verse, Puchigian's own admiration for slash obsession with Baudelaire, and what it was like to turn Les Fleurs du Mal into English poetry. Not highfalutin, perfume-soaked, fainting couch verse, but the direct, snarling poetry of the visionary with scooped-out eyes, rangy intelligence, razor wit, and a penetrating stare. Aaron Puchigian and Charles Baudelaire, today, on the History of Literature. go. Hello, hello, hello. A little wolf howl for Halloween. <laughs> I guess the producer is ambitious today. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing well, thank you. In fact, so well that I'm planning to bet on myself today. What better time to do that than October, my favorite month? So let's actually, let's do that first. We'll get there in a moment. We won't do a, a full-on biography of Baudelaire today because we did an episode on Baudelaire. It's in the archives, episode 274. If you'd like to travel back in time and get your fix of all the nuts and bolts of who Baudelaire was, where he was born, how he lived, and all that David Copperfield crap, as Holden Caulfield might say. Crap? Should I be offended by that as a professional podcaster who <laughs> delivers that, serves that up every week? Well, let me suggest that Holden Caulfield, whatever his merits and shortcomings as a literary protagonist, would have made a god-awful podcaster. David Copperfield, crap, there's gold in those hills, in my humble opinion. If you disagree, why don't you check out Holden Caulfield's podcast sometime? He made it through one and a half episodes before giving it up. And he wasted the whole time ranting about phonies. I would say it's called The Catcher in the Rye, W-R-Y, but that name has already been taken by Wisconsin legend, fellow Wisconsin legend, Bob Euchre. And we Wisconsinites have so few legends, I'm not going to step on the toes of the uke. This episode today is going to feature Aaron Puchigian, translator of Baudelaire. He translates in a way that I like. No inversion of words. That's the worst part of poetry, frankly. 
It takes me right out of it. Oh, you said things. That's what I think when I see it. Oh, you said things backwards. You said this. <laughs> this is not how people talk. You said it in a completely artificial way to make your scheme work, to get the meter right or or nail the rhyme. Well, maybe once upon a time, a reader of poetry would sail right past that if they were used to poetry sounding like that. Maybe it even sounded good to them. For me, it breaks the spell. I think, who wrote this? Yoda? Talk to me plain, my good man or good woman. Talk to me direct. Shout or whisper, woo or wound, but say it like you mean it. Not like you're filling out a crossword puzzle, especially if you're translating Baudelaire, that slinking, slouching genius, that dark and bitter heart in the muck, reaching up to grab my ankle. I'm on the raft like those poor souls in Michelangelo's Last Judgment, starving and naked, my skinny legs trembling, and Baudelaire is a demon below in the gloomy pit, reaching up and grabbing hard for my ankle. Is that the sort of guy who would stop and, and trill and mix around his words? No. Direct speech and never mind the maneuvers. Go straight at him. This translation nails that. It gives you Baudelaire in his straight, no-nonsense, imploring, importuning glory. So, before we get there, I want to tell you one more thing. I'm getting ready to bet on myself, people. I've done that before. And it hasn't worked out all that well, frankly. I could have made a lot of money betting against myself, to be perfectly candid. Can you short stock in yourself? <laughs> oh, but it's time. You can't win jackpots without rolling the dice once in a while. Speaking of which, I brought some dice with me to honor the occasion. A little lady luck to bless my bet. I wish I could tell you the details of this bet on myself, but it involves the podcast and involves Jack Wilson, hero of literature, and that's in all caps. It involves that guy, me, in a big way. It's a little terrifying to be on the verge of this bet, which is why I brought these little beauties to bolster my confidence. Dice. Put my hands in the fate of the gods. No, put my fate in the hands of the gods. I've got my odds worked out. That's what I do. I'm a pencil pusher when it comes to my future, and I've determined that I have about a 97% chance of succeeding. A 3% chance of failure. Now, usually that 3% is enough to make me overly cautious, to pull back, not to take the risk. I wouldn't jump into a tank of sharks if you told me there was a 97% chance of them leaving me alone and a 3% chance of them ripping me to shreds, I wouldn't jump into a tank of 100 sharks if you told me that 97 of them... No, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Three of them will tear you to shreds. Well, okay, let me back up. This isn't always necessarily so well thought out, but in business... Or with money, you should probably take more risk, right? 60-40, you better consider. 70-30, it's time to act. 80-20, what are you waiting for? And 97-3, to three? jump, my good man. But I need some sanctioning, some confirmation that this is the right thing to do. Once upon a time, I used to flip coins 
when I was consulting the, the I Ching. That worked out more or less. It helped. Gave me something to think about, something to consider. This time I'm going to be rolling the dice because guess what? 97. I've worked out all the probabilities and I've assigned them odds. 97% of the results, the potential results are positive. And 3%, I'll succeed beyond my wildest dreams. That would be like rolling two sixes, boxcars. That's about the percentage it is that I could roll a 12 with these dice. That success would be unbelievable. I'll be in clover forever. And 94%, the bulk, anything else pretty much, and I'll be very, very happy, much better off than I am now. And 3%, only 3%, that's about 1 in 36. 3%, it's about the odds of rolling two ones, snake eyes. It happens, but it's not likely to happen. 1 in 36. 35 out of 36 is going to work out. 1 in 36 means I've made a mistake. I'm planning to roll the dice for luck and to remind myself that I need to take risks to get anywhere in life. Almost every outcome we've got is a good one. I can live with that. 35 out of 36. Only one is a dog. So here we go. Come on, boxcars. Lucky seven, I'll take it. Even a five or a nine, why not? I could use this. Snake eyes. Oh, dear God. Of course. Of course. Well, two out of three. Did I mention that? You wouldn't bet your life on just one roll of the dice, would you? I'll do I'll do two out of three. Come on, Lady Luck boxcars to even out those snake lucky seven. Here we come. Snake eyes again. Oh, <laughs> what do I need to do? Okay. And the third one would have been boxcars, of course. When it doesn't matter at all. Why do you mock me, gods? So what now? Three out of five? Did the gods permit that? Changing the rules on the fly? I... Don't think so. I think I have to stick to what's happened. What does that mean for me? The bet on myself. I know my answer. When it counted, when I put everything on the line, it was snake eyes and snake eyes again. Four solitary dots staring at me like two pairs of eyes, gleaming like two murderers in the night, gleaming and gloating. Actually, they were... They didn't have that much life to them. They were dead, just looking at me with dead eyes. This is you, Jack Wilson. We see you and we don't care. How deranged. You know what? I'm going to roll again. For real. Three murderers. <laughs> Might as well just give up the ghost on my own. Take me now. Put me out of my misery. I can't erase those two rolls. But wait. I can do an average. Two rolls added up to four. But what about all? What about if I do three? I should round it out. If I get anything, any number above a one or two ones, that'll increase my average. Anything above six means I'm in the safe zone. The 97% where all you happy people live, people who love themselves and enjoy what they do. The world I've longed to live in for decades. Okay, come on, boxcars. Come on, boxcars. Don't fail me now. Come on back when you're actually needed. No, 
I won't be greedy. I don't need boxcars. It'd be nice. It'd be life-affirming, but really anything above a two. Please, dear God, I'm begging. I need this. Come on, big number nine, 11, 10. Come to Papa. Turn this flex into gold. Here we go, boxcars. Well. Snake eyes. I mean. What are the odds? Oh, great. Now there's someone knocking at the door. You think you're going to cheer me up? What is in the world? Hello. Ah. Who? This you? is Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, of course. Here that for sound Halloween. you hear. Yes. Bricks. Bricks. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Person. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. Mm -hmm. I am to be entombed, it seems. Ah. A pity, really. I have so much more to give. If only my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would yeah, come well, to my rescue. He's not in the best mood he's right now. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. <laughs> and how, buddy? <sighs> oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. <laughs> won't you help him? And me? Oh, you miserable old loser. You're here to to help me, to cheer me up. Well, guess what? You sort of did. <laughs> I love these visits. You came for Halloween, didn't you? Well, we didn't do a Poe month this year, but we are looping you in today with Baudelaire. But how can I help you? Didn't you hear what just happened, Edgar? I rolled the dice and lost. Triple snake eyes and incredible display. Fortune's wheel hath spun and fallen off the spindle and bounced twice and brained me. Skull fracture, me on my back with the remnants of a splintered wheel across my heaving body. Look closely. You'll see on one of the fragments a label that says Fortune's wheel made in Wisconsin. So thanks once again, you ditch made by glaciers. My home state, you've done it again. So, if you would like to save Fortunato and help the cause of literature, you can head on over to patreon.com slash literature and sign up for a small monthly contribution. If you are so inclined, if you're not a recurring payments kind of person, you can make a one-time contribution at historyofliterature.com slash shop. The virtual coffees there are basically $5 increments. So buy me a coffee, buy me a beer a shooter of absinthe, or maybe a whole bottle of Pernod if you'd like. Whiskey, I'll guzzle whatever you're pouring. Fresh water too. Juice. Think of me cleaning myself up, making myself presentable, and appearing in your kitchen for a nice morning chat, or in a coffee house if you'd like a neutral location, or in the tavern if you're more into nighttime haunts. If we, if we ever met in person, I would treat virtually... I will need to let you treat me. Speaking of treats, let's get to our talk with Aaron Puchigian. We will do that after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is acclaimed translator and poet Aaron Puchigian, who on a previous show joined us to discuss his translation of four plays by Aristophanes. Aaron spent the first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic working on a bouquet of sickly flowers, or as we might know it better, a new translation of Les Fleurs de Mal by the French poet Charles Baudelaire. Aaron Puchigian, welcome back to the History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. I'm excited to be back. So I knew you were a classicist and a poet. I did not know that you also have a facility in French. Did that come before or after you learned Greek and Latin? Yes, the classical languages and Latin in particular hmm. were my gateway into the Romance languages. Oh, right. And so I spent a fair amount of time faking reading Spanish. I can get by pretty well <laughs> reading it, but not speaking it. Yeah. And I can also read Italian pretty well. Mm -hmm. And so I spend a lot of time on, um, on Dante, an author I dote on. And yeah. I'm actually better at reading um, medieval Italian than I am at reading contemporary Italian. That's um, interesting. However... Yes, Baudelaire has been an obsession for me since I was an undergraduate. Okay. And so I have focused on reading and rereading his poetry in English and in French for decades. Mm. And it was only after I got Latin that I was able to sit down, in fact, with an en face or a dual language edition of Baudelaire and by jumping back and forth, actually begin to understand the French, mm. to read the French. Um, I recall um, when I was in graduate school for poetry, being frustrated with the city, needing to get out of the city, being frustrated with my work. And so I got a hotel up in Westchester County, a cheap hotel. And the only book I brought with me was a, the Penguin dual language on Foss edition of The Flowers of Evil by Baudelaire. Mm. And the whole weekend, I just sat and compared the English to the French and the French to the English until finally I was able to read Baudelaire's French. And so I don't I won't say I can read French okay, but I can read Baudelaire especially well because right. he was the reason I started spending time with French, so, so much time with French in the first place. Okay, so what about Baudelaire appealed to you as an undergrad? He 
was everything I wanted to be. Um, hmm. and, wow. that, and I can, I can tell, <laughs> and I can tell you, yeah. And he, and he, and he still is. Yeah. Uh, he still yeah. is. And that he, like myself is a formalist poet. He's an okay. impeccable, um, master formalist poet. Yeah. And yet he incorporates, um, this not fusty at all. He incorporates living language. He mm. is the poet. And this will um, come up later when we talk about Baudelaire as the first modernist. Yeah, right. He bursts this, the fusty little bubble that it had poetry limited to an upper class as an upper class occupation. Hmm. And also limited the diction to certain words that were considered poetic and other words that were considered prosaic. He incorporates all of those prosaic words okay. into poetry. Right. And with it, you get a sort of explosive power of living language being injected into poetry. Yeah. And I find that really um, revitalizing and refreshing. Yeah. And that's um, what I try to do and what I wanted to do as an undergraduate, though I did not fully understand it at the time. Right. Um, now, looking back, I see that that's what I admired and that's what I still admire very much in his work. Right. Because I was going to say, when you were saying that it was a, an upper class endeavor, I was thinking, well, the romantics, that's certainly true, except for someone like Keats. But when you talk about diction, Keats was still aspiring to a kind of high level of diction that he almost, you know, even though he had a working class background, he did not incorporate that language into his poetry. He did not. No. It's interesting that you bring up Keats. I was going to mention him in reference to loading every rift with ore. There's a letter Keats writes to Shelley in which he encourages Shelley to load every rift with ore. Mm. And that is to charge every line with meaning. Mm. And Baudelaire, one of the ways he differs in his use of lines of verse, and we can talk about this later if you want, is that he supercharges each line with meaning. And you can see that in his revisions he's, as he's trying to charge up the lines more and more. And I thought, thought of Keats when I was thinking of Baudelaire charging up his lines. But certainly, with the romantics preceding Baudelaire, yeah. um, we have um, lots of personal expression. And that is very relevant for Baudelaire. And he's a romantic in that sense. He makes himself the hero of his own poetry. But in terms of diction, he's very distant from the romantics. Right. Um, even from a British poet like Wordsworth, who prides himself on bringing more of the commonplace diction into the language. Wordsworth doesn't do anything like what Baudelaire does. Yeah. Now, it's interesting because Baudelaire's great hero was Poe. And I can definitely see where Baudelaire is is recognizing in him a kind of shared sensibility, a kind of renegade quality. But as far as Poe's poetry, although there was a strong formalist element to it, I don't consider him to be a poet who, I don't know how to put it, was as real or as gritty as we see in Baudelaire. That seems like something that, that Baudelaire added to Poe. I'm thinking of Emerson's line about Poe that Poe was the jingle man. You know, sometimes his, yeah. sometimes the, <laughs> sometimes the sounds are more important. It's harder to find the real Poe in there. Yes, I do think, if I may say so, that Baudelaire is a much greater poet than mm -hmm. Poe. Yeah, and even more influential. But yeah, 
I do think that Baudelaire inherited from his elder contemporary, Edgar Allan Poe, a great deal that was useful for his poetry. And um, yeah, let's talk about that for yeah. a okay. little bit. So he likes, he's willing to go to a kind of dark side, to, to revel in death and decay and, and that kind of thing. They, they seem to have a, an outlook on life that they share. But how does that translate into what we see in the poetry that, they, that Poe handed off to Baudelaire, so to speak? Yes. First, I want to say that I mean, there's literary influence, right, where authors are influential on later authors. Mm-hmm. And then there's completely different from that, Poe's effect on Baudelaire. It's more than an influence. Baudelaire worships him. Yeah. He spent a good portion of his career translating, in fact, the prose of Poe into French. And so it's almost um, like a, um, a demonic possession or something along those line, lines, the next step up from merely a literary influence. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as you mentioned, the Jingle Man Poe was influential on Baudelaire in terms of the incantatory quality right. of Baudelaire's verse, yeah. that the poetry takes you by the, the mere nature of its sound and its rhymes to an altered state. The music draws a magic circle around whatever is being talked about and says, in here, anything can happen. This is a special, Mm. magical place. Mm. But I think that Baudelaire, um, where he surpasses Poe, he is more adept with adapting patterns of words to poetic forms. Poe frequently breaks down and becomes ungrammatical, unfortunately, whereas Baudelaire never does, and he's always perfectly lucid. And so he's more in control of the formal elements, yes, as they're sort of uttered or created by the sound. There's a quote also, um, famous quote by T.S. Eliot, um, that I always think about when I think about Poe's effect on Baudelaire. And this is an important quote for recognizing modern poetry in general. T.S. Eliot says, the essential advantage for a poet is not to have a beautiful world with which to deal. It is to be able to see beneath both beauty and ugliness, to see the boredom and the horror and the glory. And there was lot of, lots of glory in poetry before Poe and Baudelaire, but they're both instrumental in bringing in those qualities of boredom and of horror. Poe both in his poetry and in his prose works. And yeah. so, as I see it, Baudelaire inherits not just the incantatory sound of Poe, but also the boredom and the horror. Yeah. And so right. we get a fair amount of, it's called ennui in French, and it's actually a word in English, E-N-N-U-I. I see Baudelaire as being conscious of these qualities of boredom or ennui and of horror and yeah. of mining them like veins of silver and gold. And so I see him as being also more of a conscious artist than Poe as well. Yeah. And so we see him uh, mining to the depths these themes. Boredom is one of the most common words, or ennui at least, is one of the most common words in the flowers of evil. We get an allegory, in fact, of boredom smoking a hookah pipe while dreaming of guillotines mm. in the first poem to the reader. 
and boredom shows up again and again throughout the flowers of evil. And then horror is pretty common in a number of poems. Most strikingly, I think, in the poem, The Martyr, in which Baudelaire describes a decapitated corpse of a woman with the head from the decapitated head sitting there on the bureau next to the bed. And he describes this scene and speculates on what happened and what lover did this. And that is certainly horrific. And he describes a number of horrific scenes. And so, yes, in those three ways, I can draw a line from Poe to Baudelaire and on into modern poetry Mm -hmm. um, through the boredom and the horror and through the incantatory sound of, yes, of the verse. Yeah, there seems to be a way in which Poe maybe made Baudelaire possible. I'm thinking Poe almost seems to me as if his brain is so central to his poetry and his brain is so superior. He has such a superior mind, but he almost seems to be always trying to maintain his grip on his sanity. And he comes across as someone who just can't help but delve into the into the horror and the nightmare because of the grief he felt or because of the terror of the world that he felt. And he seems willing to go there, but he always seems like he's trying maybe to avoid it if he can, but knowing that it's not possible. Baudelaire seems like he has more of a snarl about it where he's sort of saying, no, no, it's okay to go there because that is reality. That is the truth. That's where we'll find it. And as a poet, I am going to plumb the depths and, and rip out the heart of this thing and reemerge and, and display it for you. Is that, do you see these two as in kind of the same way? Yes. Um, I agree. I think that's great. A great assessment. And one can think of it in a couple different ways. In one way, Baudelaire is simply braver in that respect mm-hmm. than Poe, um, that he's willing to explore the sort of catacombs of boredom and horror, yeah. uh, whereas um, Poe is only reluctantly does so. In, uh, also, one may think about it as sort of, well, Baudelaire promoting himself. He mm. recognized the potential. Yeah. Right, in what right. Poe had found, and he was the one who really tried to capitalize on it. And yeah. it really worked, in that there are a few poets who have an influence outside of poetry and a standing outside of poetry, but there are Baudelaire coffee mugs. I saw on Amazon when I was looking up a Baudelaire book, Baudelaire soap for sale on yeah. Amazon, yeah. which is kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> and so, and all kinds of quotes and sayings from him. And so he has come to be a sort of embodiment of the doomed poet. Yeah. And that is something also that Poe, that persona, is something that Poe and Baudelaire also have in common. Yeah, I chuckled a little bit when you said that he was the person or the poet you wanted to be, and you made a good case for it when you talked about the freedom of his poetry. But the reason why I I had chuckled before you explained yourself is because Baudelaire does seem so miserable and so willing to to get down in the mud and and roll around in filth and disgust. And I'm wondering, was that part of the appeal for you as well, or was it the commitment to poetry? Both. Uh, The commitment to poetry and also the expansion of what one can talk about outside of what is socially acceptable. Right. That's the appeal to me. Baudelaire not only seems unhappy in his poetry and says he's unhappy in his poetry, but all the evidence suggests that at least from early middle age on, he was completely miserable. And then he 
died of syphilis. And so it's interesting. There is reinforcement in his biography. Um, it's hard sometimes to draw a distinction between the Baudelaire persona in the poems and the Baudelaire of the, bio- of the biographies. But he's an interesting poet in that, yes, he seems to have been actually miserable and wrote about being miserable. There are other poets. I think of the classical poet Statius that no one talks about. But he's really interesting in that he lived an upper-class happy life um, there's no evidence in his biography for misery or any reason to be, to be depressed. And yet his poetry is the darkest and most horrific thing you can imagine. Right. And so there's this disconnect between the biography and the poetry. But I, I don't find that in Baudelaire. From what I've read in biographies, he seems to have been genuine, genuinely miserable. Yes. Mm. Okay, so we talked about Poe and the line that we can draw from Poe to Baudelaire. When I did a, an episode on Baudelaire, I think I I hopped from there to T.S. Eliot. And I'm wondering, do you see that as basically a, a through line from Romanticism to Modernism? Or are we leaving somebody out who should be in the middle there? I like the jump from Baudelaire to T.S. Eliot. Yeah. Um, Baudelaire was hugely influential on movements that were popular in the late 19th century, the decadent movement and the symbolist movement. Yeah. But the sort of most what? The range of the influence that has the most verve is that on modern poetry and goes to Eliot. And Eliot, also a highly conscious artist, is well aware, and, and he writes in his Baudelaire essay, that the modern quality is represented in Baudelaire more than in any other poet. And so we find the boredom, certainly, in Eliot that I was talking about, the boredom and the horror and the glory. In the, in the wasteland, we have characters asking, what will we do today? What will we do tomorrow? What will we ever do? Mm. And there's a certain horror also that comes, that shows up towards the end of the wasteland and in other sections of the wasteland. P.S. Eliot's great next innovation, though, from modernism on top of Baudelaire is fragmentary sentences mm. and disjointed scenes. Yeah. Baudelaire's mind works in radical ways and will jump from association to association. But the sentences, for the most part, with very few exceptions, are complete sentences and grammatical. And there's at least the semblance of logical flow, whereas T.S. Eliot will scratch the record and just say, now we're doing this, something completely different. And he'll also use sentence fragments on complete sentences in the wasteland, for example. Yeah. And so that's his next great innovation on top of all of what Baudelaire gives us. And the other thing that we see in moving from the Romantics to T.S. Eliot and Baudelaire seems like he's at the heart of this pivot is the move from the pastoral to the urban. Yes, very good. And that is the major shift into modern poetry and modernist poetry. Mm. The shift from the pastoral or the courtly, the regal, if you will, to the urban. Baudelaire doesn't just give us the city average people he meets. He delights, he exults in giving us, in addition to the architecture and construction of various buildings in Paris, all of the city's derelicts. Yeah, right. Um, and <laughs> and so we, we, we meet them all in right. the flowers of evil, lower-class people. Certainly in the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, as well as in the wasteland, we meet lower-class and middle-class characters. And certainly there is that refrain in the wasteland that emphasizes the urbanness of it. Oh, city, city, Elliot writes. 
And so certainly that is, and so you can't have any major innovation from one movement to the next without new subject matter. And the new subject matter that Baudelaire gives to the world is this focus on the city. And yeah. Eliot certainly picks up on that. And the major difference in style is the, dif- is the expansion of diction, as I mentioned, from this sort of um, rarefied, um, exclusive, upper-class poetic diction to all of the language that prose, prose uses, all the words in the language that can fit into verse. Yeah, and it must must have been for Baudelaire to to see that his hero Poe. This is not the poetry of a, a shepherd gazing out at the flock, or a a man who's just climbed to the top of a a hill and is looking down at a stream or a waterfall or something. This is a guy who is slinking through alleys and coming out of bars and winding up in the gutter. Yes, and so he's a sort of lower class. Do you know the word flaneur? Oh yeah, um, for yeah. a, a gad about town. Yes. Yeah, um, he is a lower class flaneur, and there's one of my favorite poems. Um, translates as the little old ladies. Baudelaire, it's a, one of the longer poems. Baudelaire describes himself as walking around Paris, following little old ladies as they're hunched over and walking on their canes, mm-hmm. and it's frankly comes off to the contemporary reader as a little creepy. Yeah. <laughs> that he's doing this. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, at the end, he says, um, after he describes them, he imagines them when they were young and all the sins they participated in and how, how joyous their life was. And then he imagines the coffins they'll end up in. His <laughs> mind goes in all kinds of crazy directions, how they're shrinking and becoming like children again. And at the end, he says, I'm the only person who cares about you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's how the poem ends. Oh, so Nobody good. even pays any attention to you. I'm the only one. You should be thankful to me. Okay, so let's talk about translating Baudelaire, and I'm interested in the forms he used and in Alexandrines in particular. Yes. Tell us about the Alexandrine and how it mirrors or plays against Baudelaire's content. Okay, great. Um, the Alexandrine is a 12-syllable line in French. And when composing in the Alexandrine, one gathers then syllables around a séjour, in the middle of the mm. line, a medial mm-hmm. we call it, right there after the sixth syllable. Or later on in the history of the Alexandrine, you can have two séjourai. It's a different poetic system. Our poetic system, I don't want to get too technical and put your listeners to sleep, but the Alexandrine French poetry is syllabic. Um, what matters is the count of the syllables in the line, mm-hmm. whereas our poetry, traditional in traditional prosody, is accentual syllabic. Mm. And so both syllable counts are matter, and then also the stress of the relative stress of the syllables in the line. Oh, okay. When you said it was was twelve syllables, I was thinking it might be something like ba bum ba bum ba bum. But but without stress, that would be a different sound, wouldn't it? Yes, it, okay. w- it would indeed. And so, yes, our IMs, our bums, that's in that part of the accentual system. Yeah. So we consider both that stress, relative stress, and syllables. Whereas in French, all that matters is the syllable count. Yeah. 
and you artfully arrange those around the sejura in the Alexandrine. Yeah. Baudelaire is a strict, a master formalist. And so to answer your question, the formality of Baudelaire's verse plays against its modern content, what we just described as its more modern content, against the new diction he added, the prosaic words, against the description of the city and the description of derelicts. And so there is tension between those, and that tension, Baudelaire being a, a genius, I think, he harvests that and plays with that tension. And I think that the difference was even more striking in Baudelaire's day. Um, he came mm. across as even more revolutionary yeah. in his day than he does now. And so again and again, there will be irony in Baudelaire's work. He's a master of irony, and he's aware of it. He's self-aware. He says, yes, there is irony in my voice when I say this in one poem. And so he'll describe, for example, a homeless woman, um, a beautiful homeless girl who walks around playing the guitar in his neighborhood, and he'll describe her in 18th century stilted kind of French language in order to create that disconnect, to create that irony between the form and the subject matter. He even says that she's fit for kings. She'll go back into the, yes, the regal, the royal past of France. And so he'll Cultivate, cultivate and evoke consciously irony as the tension between the Alexandrine, the formal structure, right. and his content. But does the Alexandrine, just in general, with the six, uns, or, you know, without stresses, with six syllables on either side of a caesura, does it come across as an exhalation or an urging, or can it be whatever the poet wants to infuse? It's a very flexible, it's the sort of yeah. um, workhorse meter okay. of French poetry. Got it. And Got so it. it is very flexible. Yeah. Um, Baudelaire also, to talk about the tension between the poetry and the content, is very aware of the preservative power of poetry. Famously, in his, one of his most famous poems, The Carcass, he and his lady love are out walking in a garden one day, or a park, excuse me, one day, and they come around the bend and looking at the flowers, and they see the rotting corpse of a dead female, likely a prostitute. And Baudelaire talks about it at great length, and then he turns to his lady love, and he says, you charming princess, you will look like that. Yeah. When the last sacraments are over and you go down among the dead and rot beneath the grass and flowering clover. But the turn is the big one. Then tell the maggots, oh, my gorgeous one, as they consume you kiss by kiss, that I preserve the beauty and divine essences of my mistresses. And he does that through poetry. And so there's decay, and there is there's disease, and there is decay, and all human things wasting away. And yet Baudelaire, through these formal structures, 
essences of his poetry can capture the essences of things as in a kind of preservative or in a kind of mason jar Hmm. to pass them down to other generations. And he talks about that in another poem called Perfume, when he imagines opening a dresser drawer from somebody from a hundred years ago and finding an old vial of perfume and being able to smell the perfume through the glass and opening it and all these old memories open up. And so I see him as using form in that preservative sense. And he'll even enhance the contrast between the preservative poetry, power of poetry and the decay inherent in all things in our human world. Mm. In rendering this into English and wanting to do justice to Baudelaire and his forms and his commitment to formalism, did you feel tied to Alexandrines or did you have a different English form or were you free to adapt to whatever you felt the poem needed? I chose when translating the Alexandrines either to use English pentameters Mm -hmm. or our English Alexandrines. It is a form in English, though usually um, in English, when you use that six-foot line, 12-syllable line, the line tends to break at the sejura. Mm. People hear it as two separate lines. Mm -hmm. And so the the longest line in English I hear that always keeps its integrity is our stock formal meter, the iambic pentameter. Right. You'd, You'd use blank verse for something like Baudelaire, I'm guessing. You wouldn't try to rhyme the ends of it? Um, um, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Yes. Um, the challenge of the, that's one of the major challenges that I encountered. And so first in terms of the meters, sonnets, Baudelaire writes a lot of sonnets and sonnets in English tend to be in iambic pentameter, right? Right. At least ever since Shakespeare's famous sonnets. And so I, in sometimes I went slightly shorter and translated the poems into pentameters. And then when they're longer or they're narrative poems in Alexandrines, then I preserved the Alexandrines in English. And what about the non-Alexandrine poems? I know uh, Baudelaire also wrote some shorter lyrics. Did those adapt themselves to English easily? Fairly easily. Again, I had to change the system from syllabic to accentual syllabic. Uh And so there was some finagling, but I replicated the shorter line lengths with shorter lines in English. We call them dimeters, trimeters, tetrameters. They have names like that. And so I was able to preserve, to replicate, I'll say, the original line lengths pretty accurately in our accentual syllabic system. Right. Well, the effect is unbelievable. I know Baudelaire has had some very famous translators, but I've never read anything like yours where it has been as easy for me to read and as moving and as powerful. And I I think it's because it's a contemporary translation that maybe even some of the famous ones are already 50 years old or more. and, And it just doesn't quite capture the the directness of the language that I was getting from yours. Thank you very much. I very consciously wanted to give 21st century um, American readers or Anglophone readers a Baudelaire who spoke with them, spoke to them with great immediacy. And so, though I did work to preserve rhyme schemes, um, we'll talk about that, um, whether I use true rhyme or off rhyme, uh, because I felt that was necessary to keep the incantatory quality of the verse, I forced myself throughout 
never, never, never to invert diction or to um, complicate um, syntax in order to force a rhyme. And so I wanted this Baudelaire to speak, for the most part, in the syntax of contemporary American English. So that there wouldn't be that distancing, that alienation that one can encounter when a translation is somewhat too stiff or too fusty or too convoluted. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. So what was it like for you to write this during the pandemic as we were faced with disease and this feeling of death uh, being surrounded by just this hyper-awareness of our own bodies, our own mortality, our own capacity for spreading germs to one another, viruses. Did it feel as if Baudelaire, in some ways, I, I wonder if you felt like Baudelaire was overwhelming. You'd turn off the news and turn to Baudelaire and it would be more of the same. Or did you feel like it was redeeming or even cleansing in a way to be with someone who is so is so immersed in this kind of feeling i found it to be both exhausting and exhilarating and then also i did find a fair amount of redemption in it as well and so i compare working with baudelaire well the first when i first moved home it was um march 15th when everything shut down in new york city i went to stay with my mom for four months um, to just do some shopping for her so she wouldn't have to go out mm. in public. And the first few days I was there, there was nothing going on, and I realized that my life was pretty much over for a while. And so I just slept for three days. Mm. And I tried to pull myself out of this funk, this ennui, if you will, <clears throat> excuse me, for a number of days. And then finally I hit on this idea. I've been playing around with Baudelaire translations, this idea of translating all of the Fleur du Monde. Mm. And that was my great redemption. I spent four straight months just translating Baudelaire's French, basically from when I woke up to when I went to sleep at night, because there was nothing else to do. I didn't shave. My beard grew out. Um, I never saw anybody. But I got a lot of work done. Um, And I compare working with Baudelaire on on a par. I've worked with other translations, on a number of other translations. And I do get very involved in the character. I'm kind of a method translator. Mm, I try mm-hmm. to identify with the original author. But yeah. working with Baudelaire was like being demonically possessed, right? Like he fights you for control. Yeah. Um, and so it was both exhausting and exhilarating. Um, right. Yeah, sort of being possessed by Baudelaire for that number of months. And I swear, I still haven't entirely exorcised him from me. Um, I'm still working <laughs> on that. But he was great in that time in that he was had a certain sympathy, a sympathetic quality for me. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Because he writes about boredom, so much about boredom mm. and ennui. Right. And I was so, so bored when I was doing anything other than working on Baudelaire during this time. Yeah. He also is a great poet of escape, and I needed a lot of escape during that time. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of the escape routes he seeks are unhealthy, and that they will be wine or opium or hashish. But he also um, will escape into realms of pure imagination. Right. Do you know that song from Willy Wonka that Gene Wilder sings? Come with me, you will be in a world of pure imagination. He escapes into realms like that, um, as in his poem, 
Parisian dream. He creates a kind of M.C. Escher-like artificial world and delights in decking it out with all these waterfalls and gems. And the poem, I mean, what does it mean? I find myself not really caring. I, it's just clearly an escape poem, right? right? That I, look, look what I can do. I can create this beautiful world and you can join me in it for as long as this poem lasts. Right, And so he was good for me and that he was my great escape during lockdown. Right. Well, once again, it's a beautiful book. Your, your two books are two of the most beautiful books on my shelf. Kudos to the book designer <laughs> at your publisher. Uh, and the introduction to this work is by Dana Joya, who's an esteemed poet, former chairman of the National Endowment for the Arts. But the afterword, I wanted to, <laughs> I'm wondering if we should tell the listeners or if we should leave that as a pleasant surprise. It's by Daniel Handler, which put a smile on my face. Should I fill that in? <laughs> yes, fill it in. Okay, so he is, of course, Lemony Snicket, who created the series of Inf Unfortunate Events series starring the Baudelaire orphans. And I'm wondering, was this your idea to tap Mr. Handler for the afterward or your publishers, or how did that come about? That was my publisher, Pete Simon's idea. Yeah. Um, in fact, Norton has just put out um, a best-selling book by Lemony Snicket, Poison for Breakfast. <laughs> Um, I think it's still on the bestseller <laughs> list. And so Pete right. had started working with Daniel Handler. Yeah. When he mentioned that there was a new Baudelaire translation coming out through Norton, um, Handler became very excited because he had fond pre-adolescent memories of stumbling upon a very decadent edition of Baudelaire in the library when he was, what, 13? Yeah. And that great afterward, yes, has to do both with that first encounter, um, intense encounter with Baudelaire. Right. Well, let me make the case for this as a book for the holidays. Uh, it seems to me like poetry lovers will gobble it up, but it also is a good book for people who think they don't like poetry. That it, it seems like Baudelaire is the sort of poet who might appeal to somebody who has a certain conception of poetry that Baudelaire is going to dispel. I agree, yes. And so I've been giving, had the good fortune of giving public readings of Baudelaire, and a number of audience members have come up and told me that they normally don't like poetry and poetry readings, but that Baudelaire has enchanted them. Yeah. And so for anyone, it's a good book for anyone who wants unrestrained enchantment, right? Not only is the language enchantatory, the images are enchanting, and it takes your mind on its journey to places your mind has never been before, maybe places it doesn't want to go, but it's interesting to go there anyway. Right. And so um, I think that it would, yes, it would be enchanting for the general reader or even for people who are uncomfortable reading poetry. Right. Definitely a gift for people who love literature. The book is The Flowers of Evil or Les Fleurs du Mal, translated by our guest today, Aaron Puchigian. Thank you so much for joining me again on the History of Literature. My pleasure, Jack. My pleasure to be here. Okay, there we go. Thank you, Wolf. Thank you, Edgar Allan Poe. Thank you, Dice. And thank you, Aaron Puchigian. What a great guest and what a great translation of a great great work. Do check out Baudelaire. I think you will enjoy it. Guess who's looming on our radar, people? 
I've told you about all those others, but how about Oscar Wilde? We'll hear from him soon, maybe in a couple of episodes. Sylvia Plath is also coming out of the horizon, and Robert Hayden. My God, what a poet he is. We're going to do an episode on him, just one poet. And I'm tempted to make it about just one poem. And I'm tempted to make it all about just one word. Just one word in one poem of one poet. That's how great a poet he was. These people who call forth all my powers. Speaking of which, we should have some Dr. Johnson soon. Fantastic. A lot of writers don't, you know. They don't call forth all my powers. A lot of writers call forth none of my powers. (laughs) They should come with a warning label. This book brought to you today by... By today's sponsors, Ho and Hum. But Robert Hayden, fantastic stuff. And Gwendolyn Brooks picked up a copy of her poems when I was in Chicago recently. Fantastic stuff. We are jam-packed as we close out this year, 2021. Lots of great guests, lots of great authors. We'll get to as much as we can. But also, it looks like we're going to get off to a great start for 2022. I hope you will join us for all of that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.